Sluts and Scholars, a podcast for professionals who prioritize pleasure. You are listening to a pleasure podcast. For more from our sex podcast collective, visit pleasurepodcasts.com. Sluts and Scholars is a podcast produced by Sluts and Scholars Media, LLC. It is a shame-free educational podcast made for your entertainment and informational desires only. The podcast, any opinions we share, and any resources, including social media and emails from us, are not therapy, medical care, or professional advice, and do not create a patient-client relationship. None of the information, opinions, suggestions, resources, or exercises mentioned in this podcast should be used without clearance from your healthcare provider. All opinions, information, and ideas expressed by the guests are solely their own. If you need emergency mental health or medical help, please call 911 or 988 or go to your nearest emergency center. We hope you enjoy the show. Welcome back to another week of Sluts and Scholars, the podcast for professionals who prioritize pleasure. I'm Nicoletta Heidegger, and I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist and sexologist. And this week, I'm excited to welcome Dr. Victoria Hartman. Dr. Hartman holds two doctorate degrees, including a PhD in human sexuality with an emphasis on clinical sexology, as well as a master's in public health. Her primary focus is forensic sexology and the preservation of erotic artifacts, including the archiving of sexually explicit films. Ugh, I want to see your whole archive. (laughs) Uh, Her doctoral work centered on the effects of dark web, violent, and explicit films. She authored the book, I Love Dead People, Inside the Mind of Death Fetishists, which is based on her doctoral thesis and has proposed a new theoretical framework for classifying paraphilias, which we will get into. She is an expert explicit material evaluator, and she is the direct current director of the Erotic Heritage Museum in Las Vegas, which I would highly recommend if you're in the area, and serves on the ASRI, which is the Astro Sexological Research Institute Advisory Board. Uh, Today, we are covering a not often talked about topic highly steeped in shame, stigma, and shadow. For the first time on this podcast, we will be talking about necrophilia and death fetishism. Welcome, Dr. Hartman. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast. Much appreciated. Okay, so as we get started, let's first define what a paraphilia is. Um, How would you define paraphilia? Well... For a sexologist, we you know, one of the first tenets is we don't come from the uh, position of um, sickness or sin. Uh, it's more of a management question for sexologists. And a paraphilia, in essence, and I'm not going to use the medical definition, is a sexual variant. So in other words, things that are outside of perhaps Kinsian sexology, etc. These are unusual sexual interests where a less stigmatizing way to say is, is a, a variant on sexual interests from the mainstream. Yeah. And I, I don't want to misquote because I wouldn't say my like Latin base roots are good, but I think paraphilia is just defined as like other loving um, right. from what I, from what I understand. And I like I don't know, I'm sure this is going to fit into our conversation in some way, but I like to kind of highlight for folks, because I have talked about other paraphilias on the podcast before, including uh, minor attraction um, and pedophilia. And so what I like to really highlight for folks is that a paraphilic interest is not synonymous with a paraphilic disorder. So we're going to get into that a little bit more because you can have an interest without harming other people. So to kind of dive into that a little bit more uh, directly, what is the difference between death fetishism 
and necrophilia. Well, it's uh, let's hearken it back to what you just highlighted. Um, a death fetish is, well, it can take many forms, but at its core, at least according to the research that I've done and others have done, mm-hmm. it's very rooted in a BDSM framework. Um, mm-hmm. It can take the form of fetishizing yourself or your partner um, being hypnotized or being chloroformed or being dead or the... Uh, quote unquote, murder act, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, but these are all steeped in fantasy role play, primarily. Um, so that's what would differentiate it between necrophilia, which is, of course, it can have variances like that, too. But at its essence, necrophilia is sex with dead people and a uh, proclivity for having sex with dead people. And your viewers could probably Google Karen Greenlee and get a very good idea of what actual necrophilia is. Who is Karen Greenlee? So Karen Greenlee is a very interesting person within this necrophilia framework. She's really the best known modern day female necrophile. uh, And her primary sexual target was... Uh, young men between the ages of 18 and 25. And when she Mm. was caught, she had had um, sexual relations with about 40 uh, young male corpses. And uh, she's of particular interest to us because we have the only known artifact that she ever created that includes human remains in our collection that'll be um, debuted next August when we open up a new exhibit. So, um, so she would it'd be what you would call a, a real, a true necrophile. Mm. Okay. So is it possible to have a necrophile who isn't acting on that? Would that just make them a death fetishist or is there a necrophile without it feeling, um, without somebody acting on it non-consensually? That's a really good question. And that's something that I and my co-author have been working on in our theoretical framework. Right now, the two standard classification systems of, of necrophilia are Rosman and Resnick and Agrawal. And we have proposed a theoretical framework that challenges both of them because given the research that we've done on people in the necro online community, and these are primarily um, fetishists who have not perpetrated non-consensually against a corpse or anyone else. Um, We find that those two classification systems are lacking in uh, breadth and depth and detail and are out of order in terms of what we see in uh, severity levels. So, um, but getting a theoretical paper is is incredibly challenging to get published. Lee Malore is another great example of a an amazing scholar who's also proposed a couple of other f- theoretical frameworks as well. And getting he has not has had just the same level of success as we have getting published. So, um, challenging the mainstream um, academic institutions on changing sort of these frameworks has been difficult, but. Um, what we've found as we were doing this classification system, there are levels of severity. Uh, there's the romantic necrophile, the true necrophile, the offending necrophile, I'm paraphrasing, Mm -hmm. Uh, but, um, um, there are degrees that aren't really highlighted in the current frameworks. Like a spectrum. Like, yep. Like a spectrum. Yep. And also, uh, I've been talking to another scholarly colleague, 
but he's actually working on research to see whether or not uh, necrophilia is not just outwardly directed, but also inwardly directed. So in other words, it's uh, inversed in some individuals. And so he and I are talking about uh, whether or not certain people with uh, necrophilic tendencies also envision themselves as the corpse. So that's mm. also an interesting area of research that's ongoing. Yeah. And just to kind of echo what you were saying, it's really not talked about in any sort of like academic framework. It certainly wasn't really covered in any study things that I've done. And there actually isn't a diagnosis for it, um, even specifically in the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, the DSM. It just kind of goes under this broad category of paraphilias not otherwise specified. Right. Um, and in case it wasn't clear, um, Dr. Hartman and I are not advocating for non-consensual sex with corpses. <laughs> And I imagine the fact that we have to say that is uh, probably reflective of why it's hard to get things published, because is this the feedback you've gotten that people feel like if you're talking about it, if you're exploring this thing, that somehow they're saying that we're thinking there's permission given to non-consensual acts? Like, what, what do you think is the main holdup for the lack of discussion? Well, that's a really great uh, question. I, I suppose I would come back to Karen Greenlee as an example. Uh, when she was discovered, she went on back in the 90s on sort of a um, this should be OK tour. Uh, and well, you can imagine the backlash and she very quickly um, changed her her name, her identity, and has done so apparently so, so many times now that she can't be found. So uh, where this is a question that also. Uh, so she never got like arrested or anything. Um, she sort of did and she was fined, um, but she never went to jail or anything like that. Uh, was reprimanded. Yes, but um it Just was more communally was communally shunned like, from um, society stealing, yeah stealing a corpse rather than abuse of a corpse because the laws weren't on the books in the 90s as they are now in many states hmm. so this is a legal question that's being asked in in courts and and it's and it's mixed some courts are finding that um a corpse simply cannot it's an irrelevant question as to whether or not a a corpse can give consent it's a corpse it's deceased uh, it's no longer conscious. It it can't feel pain, and so therefore courts are you know finding that other than say vandalism or theft of their belongings, uh, you know the idea of rape of a corpse is um not, is a non-starter. Other courts are finding that well, or they're not finding, but they're debating whether or not if the person when they were alive would have consented to this, you mm -hmm. know, activity, would they, could it be then reasonably assumed that they would also not consent to it after their death, if asked that question when they were alive. And mm. so, so courts are asking these, these questions. Uh, I think the conversation that's being had in academic circles is, um, you know, uh, corpses, whether or not corpses can consent post-death. Sort of like being like a medical donor, like I'm down to be a sex donor. Yeah, exactly. Right. Um, other than that, I think most of the academic uh, community is defaulting to uh, it's it, it. It might be irrelevant whether or not the deceased person would have consent 
However, it's the family that should be considered in these cases. This irrespective of or like their, the religion or the spirituality the of spirituality like, what, or the, the body. Religion. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's irrelevant whether or not the corpse uh, could have consented or not. It's the family and, and how they see their loved one. And that's what should take precedence in these cases. So hmm. that seems to be the, the, where the, where the, you know, the dis- discussion is heading. But again, like I said, it's still being debated in courts. So we'll see. Yeah. So in, in the vein of this kind of like line between, or this spectrum that we're talking about, um, like I said, I've talked about other paraphilias on the show before, including minor attraction and, and pedophilia. And I imagine that this is similar, obviously, that as we said, there are folks who maybe have this fantasy and do a role play, but are not acting on it or at risk of acting on it. Um, and I know you have created sort of a theoretical framework for helping classify paraphilias as well as maybe a classification tool that can help in identifying those who would act on this. Um what are some things that you're seeing in your research that show the difference? Well, admittedly, when I did the research, this was back in 2000, between 09. Well, the research started in the late 90s, and I included that research around 2012. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was a 20-year research project that um, I ended up uh, using as my my thesis. And Looking back on it now, I believe that my um, the community I was sampling from was far too limited. Uh, and that's the great, I have a friend that says this all the time, the great thing about science is you're usually wrong. So the mystery continues, right? And so at the time, um, my samp- the community I was sampling were fetishists solely. They were people who had concerns about having arousal around these issues, found their way onto the internet and found a community of like-minded people who just wanted this to be a fantasy and nothing else. And at the time, I differentiated them between, say, kingsters and those who have uh, personality disorders like DSM, um, um, access to personality disorders, you know, borderline personality disorder, et cetera. However, research not only my own as i'm i'm writing two more books now so 10 years after the fact i'm writing two more books and i'm writing books now on serial killers uh, actual offenders and mm-hmm. um as i'm diving more into that research i'm finding that not everyone that commits these acts necessarily has a disorder uh they're not necessarily always psychopathic uh and i would defer to other experts in the field who have been researching this way longer than I have on this, on the actual offender side and their expertise. But what I'm finding now is you don't really know. Uh, Someone might just never offend. They might just keep it in the realm of fantasy and that's it. Some, an opportunity strikes and they decide it's in front of me, I'm going to take this opportunity. Uh, and I, and since I've been researching this, I have had, I've been navigating waters that I didn't even know existed and have been told story after story after story of an opportunity simply presented itself. And I wanted to see what it was like, or I wanted, or I'd been thinking about. So 
I'm finding now that there that demarcation line is a lot more blurred than I thought it was. Mm-hmm. And I'm learning a lot of lessons myself as I'm going into this other realm. Mm-hmm. Uh, Catherine Ramslad is a great um, uh, person to reference, you know, in her expertise as she wrote the book on BTK and so forth. So I, I lean a lot of it into her writings uh, to kind of get an idea. And, and she echoes that same thing is um, we don't really know when that crossover line can happen. Mm. Yeah. Cause I, I think in, for other offending stuff, there's, you know, we see maybe a lot higher rates of antisocial characteristics or narcissistic personality disorder characteristics. Definitely that. Yes. Um, and so I think there's this overlap, um, in the studies I've done on other paraphilias. So it sounds like it's somewhat similar, but maybe there's additional intersections of like, there's some unique outliers that you're seeing of, of more and more people um, for other reasons, which do you think, do you think showing that those findings will make death fetishism more stigmatized than it already is? There's the potential for that because, you know, because it's, it's like, oh, well, we never know who's going to turn never fantasy know, right. to reality. Well, yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, I certainly leaned into, well, there are certain characteristics of these people and you can kind of identify them and so forth and so on. And as I've gotten more into this research, while that's true to some degree, yes. Yeah. And you were right with the narcissistic personality disorder. Again, coming back to BTK is a great example of that. Mm-hmm. However, there, there are... It, I think the public discourse is, oh, well, they they can be identified, et cetera. But especially now that we're re- seeing this surge of culture examining serial killers like the recent Jeffrey Dahmer uh, show, et cetera, um, that, that, that these individuals have a, a side that most people don't want to acknowledge because we need to put them in a box so that we can mm, identify yeah, them. Yeah, like either monsters them. or not. They're either monsters or not, right? And I, I know that for me, as I'm doing this research, that like I said, I've been surprised by how much more blurred those lines are. Mm. However, um, yes, there are some distinguishing factors between a kingster and uh, someone who would offend. And what mm. I've found, at least amongst the kingsters, is the the only differentiation that I've found between, because I haven't really seen a lot of studies of a comparison between the two, because most, a lot of, not, a lot of scholars study death fetishes, the kingsters, right? And they're not out. Um, they're in dark web communities and so forth, mm-hmm. is a sort of instinctual aversion to the real thing mm-hmm. that the people that I studied offered without ask, being asked. Yeah. This was something that they said, look, this is squarely in the realm of fantasy. And this is how I want it to look because the real death is repulsive to me. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that seemed to be that distinguishing marker, at least as I could tell, comparing the two, Mm -hmm. those who would offend and those who wouldn't. Um, And so so if if real death is repulsive or they're like, I have no interest in acting on this, what are some of the sort of the whys? of um what interests people about it what 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 have you found draws people to this uh it's it in that sense um a lot of times uh at least amongst the the male identified um fetishists is it more did you find it was more male identified fetishists uh no 
Okay. No, no, no. It was about a balance between the two, but the reasons okay. were different. Okay. Uh, and, and male fetishists, it was uh, a, not being rejected, uh, being being able to have a partner that they can do anything that they want sexually without experiencing shame or mm. guilt. Mm-hmm. And for the uh, female identified and, and women fetishists, it was the ultimate form of submission, being owned by someone completely, mm. being belonging to someone completely, and having that person do whatever they want to them, and them deriving pleasure for it without guilt. Mm-hmm. Uh, even if it's in the the form of their idealized uh, dead self, right? Mm-hmm. Um, although, like, we're researching now on whether or not these are, inver- are you know, um, inversions. Uh, I didn't see a lot of inversions in the males. I saw more inversions in the female. Um, inversions meaning, like, uh, wanting to force the, Yeah, the idea of the some, okay. uh, oneself as a corpse versus uh, someone uh, else being a corpse, yeah. Interesting. Okay. So, so that's why we keep coming back to the BDSM yeah. framework where kink is concerned uh-huh. or the, the fetishism is concerned because yeah. it seems to be pretty rooted in that framework. Yeah. Hey, slutty scholars, I have some amazing discount codes for you today. A trifecta to be exact. Perfect in time for holiday shopping. So listen up. When you are not listening to the podcast, I hope you're listening to our wonderful sponsors at Dipsy. In case you haven't heard, Dipsy is a fabulous app full of hundreds of short, sexy audio stories. They also have soothing sleep stories, wellness sessions, and sexy written stories to read. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash S&S. I personally love using Dipsy as a warm-up to my partnered experiences. I also like using it by myself, but for me, it takes me a while to get out of my head and into my body, especially after a long day. And I personally like to allow for more time to build erotic energy. So I will listen to a story on the way to a date or before my partner comes over. This for me has been a great way to take ownership of my own desire and arousal patterns. And you can do the same. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extension extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash S and S. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to D-I-P-S-E-A stories, dipsystories.com slash S A N D S S and S. Dipsystories.com slash S and S. This episode is also brought to you in part by Manscaped. Another way some of y'all might like to prepare for a date is to trim or shave. If that's your vibe, or if your partner likes to trim or shave, then I'd like to introduce you to Manscaped's Lawnmower 5.0 Ultra. I certainly appreciate when a partner takes the time to take care of their body and put an effort for me, especially if it's someone I've been with for a while, because let's face it, sometimes we get too comfortable and start taking our long-term partners for granted. Well, don't do that and instead join the 9 million people worldwide who trust Manscaped with the brand new Lawnmower 5.0 Ultra by going to manscaped.com for 20% off plus free shipping with the code SCHOLARS. Don't let the name fool you. I also use this brand on my bits and I trust Manscaped with my most prized and sensitive parts. There are different settings so you can decide how short you want to go with your pubes and Manscaped's fifth generation trimmer also features these cool dual LED spotlights to provide contrast on different skin tones and just 
in case you want to spotlight your genitals just for fun. It's cool to do that. And it's also waterproof. So get 20% off and free shipping now with the code SCHOLARS at manscaped.com. That's 20% off and free shipping with the code SCHOLARS at manscaped.com. It's time to go ultra with Manscaped. And luckily, there is something for everyone today. I am so excited to be sponsored by Edoha. If you listen to the podcast, you know that I think self-pleasure tools are the best and that pleasure is essential to health and healing. And right now, Edoha is offering our listeners 10% off with promo code S&S. Just go to sluttyscholars.com and click on the Eroha link. Edoha is created by women to help everyone redefine pleasure. Inspired by the idea of treating oneself to a luxury facial or indulging in a relaxing bath, Iroha believes that it is essential to prioritize the pleasure that our bodies desire as an essential part of self-care. And for you slutty scholar nerds out there, the Aroha Mai uses technology that can be found in game controllers. Uh, This haptic wave technology converts low-frequency sound waves into a tactile experience. Um, This technology allows their tools and toys to create 10 unique vibration patterns based on the sounds and the rhythms from everyday life. So you can experience more dynamic vibrations. And trust me, you can feel these vibrations throughout your whole body and find pleasure that really resonates with you. I am personally loving the new sensations from my Iroha toys, and they have really enhanced my self and partnered experiences. So right now, they are offering listeners 10% off with promo code S&S. Just go to sluttyscholars.com and click on Iroha. That is I-R-O-H-A, Iroha, at sluttyscholars.com. SluttyScholars.com, click on Iroha's link and use code S&S to get 10% off. The link will also be in the episode's description. And if you order now through November 8th, you will get a free Iroha Petite. Amazing. Well, hope you enjoyed and enjoy these advertisers and their products because I really try to make sure there are things that I hope you will enjoy and there are things that I enjoy. And remember, the more you support them, the more you support the podcast. Now, back to the episode. Another, I mean, this could be like in addition to the things that you described, but um, I've, you know, come into contact with a few folks who beyond the sort of power dynamics, there's like something about the primalness and also the physical characteristics of how somebody looks in a role play scene, whether that be like their face moves a certain way or the noises that they make or, um, you know, that there's this uh, lack of standard what, you know, we're supposed to look like when we're experiencing pleasure kind of thing, (laughs) where it looks like what the French call the little death, where you're just like having these really intense physical things that you're seeing. And I've heard a lot of folks who really seem to enjoy that aspect of it. Yeah, that's very true. Uh, there seem to be distinctions depending on the quote unquote type of death that they fetishized mm-hmm. uh, uh, eyes and the direction they're looking, uh, the way the tongue is hanging, uh, the way yeah. that the uh, neck is bulging, um, mm-hmm. uh, a belly button. Uh, there's a, there's such a thing called belly. They nicknamed it belly butt. And that is 
penetrating the belly button as a pseudo penetrative orifice. Um, hmm. So, so yeah, the, and how their neck is kinked or directed or how an arm is directed or how the body is positioned. These are all really important elements depending on the type of yeah. death and that particular individual's preferences. Yeah. I mean, it, it makes sense that this um, interest is at such the, in such shadow and, and shame and stigma because people don't want to talk about sex and our culture is also very death phobic. So yeah. you put the two together yeah. and, <laughs> but it also makes sense why people would be interested because it's two supremely taboo things. Um, and I imagine there's people listening who are just like, these people are fucking freaks. Like, oh yeah, there's yeah. not that many people <laughs> who are into that. Like they think that it's probably a small fraction of folks, but you described it as sort of a, um, a spectrum. Are there more people into this than we think? Well, the group of people that I read that I um, found my participants in was over 50,000. Now, that's not how many participated in the study because they were very much underground. But mm -hmm. at that point, there were about 50,000 people in just this one community that I was, you know, steeped in while I was doing my research. So, uh, and, you know, as I've learned and you got to remember I, I even though you know i'm writing books on serial killers right now my area of expertise is necrophilia so i'm hearing more from necrophiliacs mm, yeah uh, and uh, you know so in other words they haven't committed uh, a murder okay yeah. so um they've just had access to to dead bodies uh and uh, again it, you know uh, these these acts aren't necessarily they aren't particularly violent and and some of the the kink that the non-offenders have the the offenders do too so uh um yeah i'm curious so are there any differences that you've heard from people who have offended um or people who have acted on it um and are more steeped in the necrophilia are there other reasons that interest them about about corpses um well, I'm still gathering some of these testimonies right now because, like mm -hmm. I said, they're all anonymous. But yeah. and of course, I can't know whether or not these are all true. But I'm just going to default into assuming yeah. that they are. And uh, well, like I said, primarily what I've noticed is uh, these are opportunities that happen that they take advantage of, and um, or they go into you know uh, that that field of work in order to have access but but not the same kind of things that i'm hearing from the from kinksters who are not offending is the same unresisting partners not having to experience shame or guilt mm -hmm. um uh, a lot of them treat the bodies very lovingly post coitus or you know what have you uh they wash them and they dress them and they you know are tender with them etc uh sometimes it's uh, you know a a final goodbye from one spouse to another it was just i didn't want to let that my partner go oh, and, you know, interesting um, yeah it was it wasn't necessarily all purely sexual there were a lot of very powerful emotional elements to that that's really inter interesting because like, I, I mean, the amount of times I've seen in shows or movies where people kiss their partner when they've died and they're already dead. Um, and that's normalized where there's this like loving, um, holding, hugging, kissing, embracing of, I don't want to let you go. So that's, that's interesting that there's a, uh, a spectrum there of yeah, like what's yeah, okay and what's not, what's respectful, what's not, um, what is consensual, what's not. 
Well, yeah. And Karen Greenlee went into great detail when she was interviewed, you know, because people were wondering, well, you know, male necrophiles, we kind of understand the mechanics of it, but female necrophile, how does that work? And she said, uh, just like when you're alive, you don't have to have penetration to make love. Uh, mm, so, you know, uh, so for her, uh, and this is echoed with others, you know, it's, there's a whole category uh, for both Rosman and Resnick and Agrawal called the romantic necrophile. Uh, you know, this is a loving act. It, it's uh, or a way to say goodbye or a way to honor a loved one. So, there, yeah, there's a big spectrum. Mm. There's a big spectrum. Have you come across any cultures where this is normalized? Uh, I've been primarily uh, I haven't looked at cultures. I've been primarily working with American individuals okay. and American serial killers and so forth. Uh, so I haven't done a cultural analysis on on this phenomenon yet. Not sure yeah. if I will, but we'll see. What do you think for folks? Is this the same? But there are a lot of people who have sexual attraction and fascination with serial killers. Um, mm -hmm. And so that can be on a spectrum, right? Of just like, I love watching true crime. This is really interesting. I want to know more. Like there's something um, really voyeuristic about it to the extent of like, you know, writing love letters and marrying those serial killers when they're in prison. Um what anything you found of like what what interests folks in that? What is it? What is sexy about someone who's caused this harm? That is a really great question, and not too many are, uh, people are asking it. Uh, that at least I know of. Um, there are there's some debate among scholars about a a, a, a paraphilia that's well, kind of new on on the table called hebristophilia. Uh, mm. Now there's been some research done. Um, uh, among scholars on spree killers and the attraction to spree killers. And there seems to be two, at least amongst the groups who fetishize them. And they primarily studied late teens from like 16 to about mid twenties, female uh, fans, which seems to be the predominant kind of fan as the teenage female fan or, you know, young adult. And, um, there seems to be two different types of individuals with hebristophilia, although hebristophilia is still being debated. And one is the savior who wants to save the individual who is a criminal or who mm. has transgressed against society. And yeah. then the one that wants to join mm. and wants the permission mm. to be the same way and finds the ability to do that through that that killer uh and mm, they because it's like oh well they they sort of like they made me a little bit like yeah a little bit and also they tend to already be sort of more on the aggressive side they mm -hmm. have the more aggressive sexual fantasies around mm -hmm. spree killers um and then the ones who are more i want to be the savior for them it's more romantic so there's romantic yeah. idealism around these individuals there's also an evolutionary perspective uh, which is, uh, you know, serial killers are, again, BTK, Ted Bundy, they ruffle their feathers and they prance around and they announce that they've done this and they're very, they write, they draw pictures about it. They mm -hmm. go into explicit detail about their crimes. Yeah. Uh, and there are some evolutionary scientists who are, are psychologists who are arguing that this is a mating call for certain types of individuals. Uh, I think that's an interesting hypothesis. I don't know how far they've researched that. So there are a number of different mm. 
sort of like I'm stronger, I'm superior, I can, I have like the highest form of dominance that I can. That's exactly right. Yep. I imagine that what fits also into the um, the savior complex is the like special complex of like, well, they'll kill everyone else, but they won't kill me because I'm special. So sometimes I think it's maybe saving them of like I can heal them from this, but other times it's I, I I I've seen it be more like I they're not like that with me. Right. Yeah. Desire yeah, kind I, of thing. I, yeah, I guess you could kind of fall into the the same thing that we, you know, sometimes mm-hmm. see uh, um in mental health is yeah. well, my boyfriend, you know, he's mean to everybody else, but you know, he's not going he's not mean to me and uh or won't yeah. be mean to me or you know, he won't do those things to me. And it's the same kind of mentality. Yeah, that we could change someone cuz we're just we can special change enough. Someone. We just can love them into being better, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, again, I'm sure there are some people listening who are like, we shouldn't even be talking about this. Like sure. this gives permission to it. all the, all this, all this stuff. Why do you feel that it's important that we talk about and research these things? Well, first of all, uh, if you look at it from a, a criminological perspective, um, while it's not happening as much now since the DSM changed its diagnostic criteria, and they actually do discuss these kinds of things in, in subsequent papers, uh, just because someone has a kink does not mean they're going to offend. And uh, if we sort of do a, you know, um, oh, well, this person has this kink, therefore they might, therefore they should be incarcerated or somehow detained because they might, uh, then we get into civil rights and um, incarcerating people that haven't done anything because we think they might, or we're worried that they will because they're they have this this fetish. Um, mm-hmm. So incarcerating. Well, and at least at least with minor attraction, we've seen that have a backfire effect as well. Of like, the more that you socially isolate somebody and the more someone feels shame and stigma the more there can be like backfire effects of of how that affects somebody mental health wise and so if we're not talking about it if there's no community and discussion about it people are only living in these secret dark web forums um where i think in the shadows things can whether they happen more or people just feel worse about themselves and that can lead to other mental health issues um it has a backfire effect, but I think people like to live in this fantasy that if we don't address the elephant in the room, it will get smaller and disappear. Right. And that's exactly the opposite of the, of the reality. You know, uh, in my research, it was the individuals who sought out these dark web communities mm-hmm. did have that guilt, did have that shame, were you know, uh, uh, they did have severe mental health challenges. And once they found a community of accepting individuals who understood uh, that same kink and were, you know, were examples that, no, you're not a monster. You just have this, you're not going to actually hurt anybody. You're, you're not going to do anything. They not only did a lot of their mental health challenges either resolve or reduce, but they found themselves feeling altruistic towards the individuals who were struggling with those things newly into the community. So they reached out and and were trying to say, look, it's going to be okay. This is a kink that you have. We all have it here. And and none of us actually want to hurt anyone. So please don't be afraid of yourself or harm yourself. Uh, so you, you're absolutely right. There is that. Uh, 
like I said, in my research, uh, there was a under 1% uh, who had, had actually offended. Uh, it was a minuscule number. Uh, everyone else that participated in my research had not and had no intentions mm-hmm. on it. It just wasn't something they wanted to do. Mm-hmm. So, um, so yeah, I think, I mean, if you talk about minor attracted people, you have what are, of course, known as, um, uh, what are they, virtuous pedophiles. Um, and, you know, I, I suppose, I don't know if I want to draw an equivalency, but just like, you know, in the kink, in the virtuous necrophiliacs. Yeah, they're virtuous necrophiliacs. They, this, this is a kink for them. They actually do want a consenting live partner to be able to live out these things. And some don't want to even do role play. They just want to have it as a fantasy that they can share through drawings, through chat, through these kinds of things. So there is a delineation there. I do hear though that the like act of it on a on a corpse though is an interesting philosophical debate of like the soul and the body and like what is you know what kinds of things can consent it also just makes me think of like of course this is different you know but like the medical field and system of like using bodies to research and do other things on and, and cadavers and like do they really know what's happening and and like how we handle bodies in different cultures and religions and spiritualities like it it is a really interesting um philosophical discussion of like what makes somebody human it is uh you know we've had to recently have that discussion at the museum um we uh have um, developed a relationship with the von hagen's folks uh and are hoping to have what's that Von Hagen's, the plastination, the, the folks who originated plastination, the bodies, exhibits, et cetera. Uh, uh-huh. uh, and we, uh, you know, have a relationship with them and um, they're, you know, given that the kind of museum that we are, you know, we, we would be focusing on reproduction, et cetera. And, and they, the discussion, you know, they're very clear on, well, we do put specimens in your facility uh, should they become damaged or uh, just age, uh, there are restoration techniques. But if they are unrestorable, they are not to be thrown away. They are not to be uh, donated anywhere else. They are to be properly cremated and buried appropriately. Um, and they're very clear on that. So uh, it is It is a, an interesting discussion that we've even had to have as we've wanted to expand our our knowledge base at the museum and, and not just about sexuality, but what that looks like and how we research people, just whether they're alive or dead. And mm-hmm. uh, so that's been, so you're, you're, you, you, you bring a really good topic. You raise a really good issue is, is um, that is a discussion to be had. Um, and I don't know that we're ever going to have clear-cut answers as long as we and coming back to your point as yeah. long as we're still having a discussion that's what's yeah. important. so, so let's drug isn't going to help anything let's say somebody is having some of these desires they want to connect with community um any tips on finding um connecting with people and also connecting with i guess what i would call like ethical content online Google is uh, a great resource, obviously. Um, I would have to respond to that with... Read your uh, book. An an individual who has a death fetish is probably going to know where to go uh, simply because um, it 
is such a private thing and you know yeah. outing oneself is scary yeah uh so um i would just like people have raised concerns like well if we make this available you know then everybody's going to look for it if you have a death mm. fetish you have a death fetish and if you don't you don't and you're not going to look for it unless you know um you're on a mission of some other kind. So, uh, and I imagine if we talked about it more, it could be easier to maybe help differentiate what are ethical spaces and not, but yeah, because yeah, it is yeah. so and in the shadows, it's a little bit wild westy. It's very wild westy. Yeah. And, and mm -hmm. as for ethical content, that's a really great, um, uh, subject to raise because we're having this cultural discussion about whether or not pornography itself is ethical. Uh, there are all kind. There are two different sides on that, seemingly, where right. anything that's that's adult in nature is exploitive and uh, the result of trafficking. Now you add death fetishism to that, and it it raises a whole host of other kinds of issues. Mm -hmm. uh, so, as for ethical content, yeah, I guess it depends who's defining what is ethical. Depends on who's defining what's in what's ethical content, and yeah. pornography itself is is having that moment where people are are writing. I guess I'm thinking like consenting kinky adults. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so. Um, uh, I don't really know how to answer yeah. that question. Um, I guess it's just it, saying it's it's out there. <laughs> it's out there. It's out there. Yeah. Um, um, check. Yeah, it's out there and you're not alone. Yeah. I mean, obviously, like you're saying, people are worried about them being found out because of the shame and stigma related to this. But you, you're speaking openly about the research of it. What kind of um, pushback or comments have you gotten from people who are... Um, Less clinical than I am. <laughs> uh, you know what? Uh, curiosity, mostly. Um, okay, so some curiosity. There's been a lot. Yeah, uh, people, uh, and maybe they're just being nice to my face. Uh, maybe but, <laughs> you know, maybe they're just being nice to my face. Uh, but uh, um, more you know, people say, "Well, huh? Well, that's that's an interesting topic. I hadn't concern. I hadn't thought about." And generally. Even if they're challenged by it, they want to they want to listen uh, to what I have to say. And I don't push myself on people. I do this research um, quietly. Uh, and uh, but, you know, when someone asks, I, I tell them honestly what it is I'm researching and why I'm curious about it. And, and the origins of my curiosity are uh, my own trauma. And that drove me to want to understand why people offend mm -hmm. and if there was anything I could do to prevent that what happened to me happening to anyone else and I'm also a trained trauma therapist I worked primarily with uh, survivors of sexual trauma and that was the impetus of why I wanted to research this because yeah that seemed the most severe um representation of the potential for harm that I yeah. could think of. Yeah. Right? Which is, which is interesting. Cause I think a lot of people who this scares when they think of paraphilias and when there's research done on the folks with those interests or who have offended, um, there can be a lot of sort of miss, I don't want to say miss, um, misguided thoughts that like, Oh, if you're doing that, that you don't want to, um, keep people safe as right. opposed to the opposite being true where you're like i'm doing this because i think we need to talk about it more in order to minimize trauma 
Right, right. And that was the impetus for my researching this at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, once I stumbled upon abnormal yeah. psychology and my undergrad work, this that's just those two coalesced and that's the direction I went. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, at least in the sense of of the paraphilia itself, uh, yeah. I was convinced I was going to be on the cover of Time magazine that I was going to be the person to be able to identify when someone was going to actually cross that line. And what I found was a community of kinksters who simply tried to find each other uh, so that they could express this in a consensual way. Yeah. Uh, So that was an interesting diversion from my original intent of why I went into it. Um, The curiosity remains, and that's why I continue to do research and why I've moved into the offender realm is to broaden my understanding of uh these individuals and to maybe still find that line, which is what I'm, I continue to, to try to discover. I Mm -hmm. might not ever find it, but um, the, the drive to want to reduce harm is still the driving force. Yeah. Well, last question before we wrap up, since it is Halloween season, um, (laughs) what about zombies? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, the, um, Zombies, vampires, and you know, we, it's, it, it, that is great that you brought that up because isn't it interesting how culturally we fetishize without even saying the word fetish? Uh, the dead, the zombies are sexy, vampires yeah. are super sexy, right? Yeah, I mean, I guess not a lot of people are saying, hey, I want to fuck a zombie, but we're like obsessed with zombie content. We're obsessed so we're, with zombies. We're fetishizing yeah. it. We're, we're like, Sure. Focused on it. We're obsessed yeah. with it. We like, dress up as sexy zombies and, you know, we talk. And you know what? I have never <laughs> been hit on more than when I'm dead something for Halloween. <laughs> like whenever I'm like a zombie version of XYZ, I get hit on the most. And you know what? I, I interesting. It's interesting. interesting. And I sometimes wonder, I don't know if it's the result of us uh, collectively as a people having faced a, a plague. Uh, and that death was in our face so viscerally. Uh, but there's been such an, a, a surge of gothic uh, aesthetic and gothic dress and gothic. Uh, I mean, we just had a hotel a hotel here uh, do a gothic theme in some of their rooms. This is like this. There's this. It re-embra- I mean, I saw this in the 80s when I was a teen, but, uh, you know, uh, there's this re-embracing of the gothic and the dark and death talk and so forth. So it's become yeah. a cultural phenomenon. So, yeah, zombies- I, guess, I guess zombies and vampires are a way for people to say, I want to fuck dead people without saying they want to fuck you, dead I wonder. people. <laughs> Where it's like, oh, this is socially acceptable in Hollywood because, yeah. oh, they're not dead. They're a vampire. It's like, but they're dead. But they're dead. Right. Yeah, right. There, there's that line again. I think that I think the the uh, part of that is rooted in we don't understand death. It's fascinating to us, and maybe it's easier to sexualize it because we can look at it. Whereas if we don't, maybe it's a little bit more scary. Well, yeah, and, and that's another way to normalize this a bit too, or normalize the interest a bit too. Is like not in a stigmatizing way, but we do fetishize things that are traumatic for us. You know, we do sometimes seek those out in ways to find corrective experiences through pleasure. And so a lot of us have probably had trauma with death and dying. So in that line, it would make sense that people find ways to find something pleasurable in it in order to face that. A great uh, scholar, Erwin Yalom, he wrote a book called Staring into the Sun, and he addresses this directly as he sees people in his practice when he was still in practice 
uh, as they are they are facing their own death, how mm-hmm. there's a surge of sexual activity for them as a man, means to cope. So you are right on the money on that. Interesting. Well, um, Dr. Hartman, thank you so much for joining. Um, how can people um, get in touch with your work, check out the Erotic Heritage Museum, read your books? Uh, well, I'm easiest found on YouTube. I have a podcast as well. It's called Sex and Nerd Podcast. Uh, and I do everything from true crime to um, standard sexual issues. Uh, and I also dabbling into in, in music videos, too. So I've been creating some music videos. Uh, but uh, there and then, of course, the Erotic Heritage Museum is here in Las Vegas. We're open seven days a week. Um, and uh, we are also taking a little bit of a more gothic turn for the next year or two. Uh, and we have well, with you at the fun. helm. I wonder how that yeah. happened. <laughs> right. Well, we've avoided it for a decade now and I've been there 14 years. So, okay, uh, okay, but, okay. but yeah, and my, and my, all my staff is behind it. 100%. You That's know, we're cool. all just sort of embracing this, but we're yeah. in Las Vegas. We're right next door to planet 13, which is the big entertainment dispensary complex. Uh, so just get on a plane and come to Vegas. And if you're not ready for the death fetishism, they also have puppetry of the penis, which is yeah. a bit lighter. So there's something, yeah. something for the whole family. Yeah, we have, we actually have <laughs> artifacts and artwork and so forth that aren't necessarily that dark. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, thank you so much. And listeners, thank you for tuning in, for being open-minded. Um, and if you want to follow what I'm doing, I'm on Instagram at Sluts and Scholars, on Twitter at Sluts Scholars. Uh, you can listen anywhere you get your podcast or at slutsandscholars.com. Please don't forget to rate and review and check out those advertiser discounts. Thank you, uh, Dr. Hartman. Thank you so much. Sluts and Scholars, a podcast for professionals who prioritize pleasure. Sluts and Scholars is a podcast produced by Sluts and Scholars Media, LLC. It is a shame-free educational podcast made for your entertainment and informational desires only. The podcast, any opinions we share, and any resources, including social media and emails from us, are not therapy, medical care, or professional advice, and do not create a patient-client relationship. None of the information, opinions, suggestions, resources, or exercises mentioned in this podcast should be used without clearance from your healthcare provider. All opinions, information, and ideas expressed by the guests are solely their own. If you need emergency mental health or medical help, please call 911 or 988 or go to your nearest emergency center. We hope you enjoy the show.